We read the Gospels to meet Jesus Christ. We must read and reread them if we want to come to our own personal intimacy with our Redeemer. Intimacy of that sort cannot be handed to us by anyone else, however gifted he may be, whatever the measure of his spiritual insight. We have to make it for ourselves with Jesus as with any other friend by constantly meeting him, experiencing him, and meditating on that experience. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Before we dive into the show, let me make my last little announcement. I have now left parish ministry to pursue a career of speaking, writing, and podcasting that is made possible by the fine folks over at Paradisius Day as I join as their mission evangelist. What a great title for that man is you, their men's ministry. So if your parish ministry campus or diocese needs a mission, a staff retreat, or evangelization training, be sure to reach out to your old boy, Gomer. Go to gomer at layevangelist.com, or you can go to layevangelist.com website for more information, a website seen by dozens. All right, last week, we talked about the illuminative way and our relationship with Christ. Quick recap, Christ strips away from the soul all those things that are not of Christ, the gifts, the adornments, in the purgative way. But in the illuminative way, Christ turns to the soul to adorn her with all that is himself. He gives her all the graces that he wants her to have. Tracing similar pathways with the purgative, we look at first the external things that now Christ uses to shape us, the internal things that he draws us to conform us to himself, and finally that highest union of the soul with Christ himself, which is the point of Christian faith to begin with. We ended up talking about that gravest of all spiritual dangers right before the moment of true and lasting union with Christ, which is simply called individualism, according to the book Friendship with Jesus by Robert Hugh Benson. Yeah, that individualism, a title that surprised me, is seeing oneself as the arbiter of all truth or, or of Christ's truth or of the gospel, especially over and against the voice of the church, which is Christ's voice down through the ages. And so we often find, as Robert Hugh Benson points out, all the great heads of heresies that have rent the body of Christ, these were those in the illuminative stage, in the lighter parts of the illuminative stage. And sadly, though, because he says, it is from this place that all the Judases of history are taken, and that should sober us up. But now, what I want to do, looking back on all of our previous episodes, is I want to summarize the story so far. So we've had 11 episodes on this thing of discipleship. We've used authors like Frank Sheed, Robert Hugh Benson, the venerable Fulton Sheen, obviously the Bible and the catechism. But what we need to understand is that with all these books and all this great stuff, 
They're here to help focus our wandering mind and heart and to drive deeper into what does it mean to be his disciple, to follow after Christ. In the first episode, we sketched it out in very brief terms. Jesus calls people to discipleship in many different ways, many different people, many different vocations, right? Not everyone was knocked off a horse. We barely even know about the 12 apostles. The only one that we have any information about is Peter, Judas, Levi slash Matthew, Philip, a little of Nathaniel slash Bartholomew. But that's not the point. The point is not to get to know the apostles. The point is to the point is to act like the apostles and watch the words and deeds of Jesus. The point is imitation so that we can have intimacy with our Lord. In the second episode, we talked about what is the real Christ or how real is Christ to you? As Hans Urs von Balthasar said, the emergencies in the church are everywhere. We have dimmed the light of Christ and we individual Christians, we don't really know him anymore. And so as Frank Sheed said, it is time for an examination of consciousness. Frank's desire is to make him alive in us by doing this character study of Jesus in the gospels in his wonderful book to know Christ Jesus. The gospels are transcultural right? Because he is divine, but sometimes we lose sight of his humanity. And that's what we have to do. We have to reground ourselves in the gospels and realize that when the word became flesh, God took on the attributes of this man, this body born of the virgin, this man, these words, these deeds, not some, I look in my heart. I don't think Jesus is too nice. He's too inclusive. That's one way we reduce Jesus to an abstraction. We reduce him down to just his kindness or being nice. He's a nice guy. Or we reduce Jesus to my neighbor. You hear this a lot when you hear people be like, well, I I don't know about these miracle stories and all that, but I, I looked at how I love my neighbor and how I carry on with my neighbor and how I see Jesus in my neighbor. All of that is good. All of that is great. But if we really encountered Christ in the Gospels, wouldn't that help us to understand when Jesus was nice and when he was not very nice and why those things were different? Wouldn't it also help us to recognize the real Jesus in our neighbor instead of just seeing ourselves everywhere we look? The final last one that I'm most guilty of is reducing Jesus to just our theological diagram, right? It's that understanding that, uh, no, Jesus in the Gospels, that was uncomfortable, what you just said. I have this image of you. You should act this way. You're the God-man. I read St. Thomas Aquinas. This is how I understand you. And then every so often, you'll get a Gospel. You're like, ooh, I kind of wish you didn't say it like that, Jesus, when in reality, we need to say to ourselves, Why am I afraid of the way this man, Christ Jesus, really did live and speak and act, right? Why is that a conviction of me? And so the first pillar of intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ is that pillar of returning to the real Christ of the Gospels. Do not allow the world to obscure our vision of the true church and of Christ, and don't allow the pettiness of church politics to obscure Christ either. Return and return again to Christ in the Gospels. And when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we immediately encounter the second pillar of intimacy with Jesus. So the first is turning to him in the Gospels, and the second is turning to him in personal prayer, our devotion, our devotional life. 
So if you think about the apostles, they were first Jewish boys and girls raised in prayer. Think about the great feasts, the great rites and rituals, the great pilgrimages, all the Sabbaths and the high holy days that formed them in prayer in their walk with the Lord. The great heroes of faith taught prayer from different aspects, Abel's offering, Enoch's walk with the Lord, Noah's patience and persistence, Abraham's faithfulness, Jacob wrestled and contended with God, Moses was the ideal intercessor. The prophets walked in the power of the word of God. The Psalms formed generations in liturgical and personal prayer in the temple, during feasts, but also in the home. Above all, though, the disciples saw Jesus pray. They had to be attentive to what was different about him and his prayer as a Jewish man, raised in the same traditions they were raised in. And yet, when they saw him pray, they were compelled to say, Lord, Teach us to pray like that. (laughs) I want to know how you pray, because when you pray, something else is happening. They had to be attentive to how he modeled prayer. But also, we turned in that third episode to how Jesus explicitly teaches prayer, right? We looked at the parables of the importunate widow and the importunate friend and the prayer of the the two in the temple, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. But we see, above all, that Jesus wants what he has by nature, he wants to give us in our prayer, which is first conversion of heart for us, right? So that we can understand that prayer is essentially filial. That is, it's ordered to sonship. It is for us to understand that we are sons and daughters in the son, Jesus Christ. That's what grace does for us. Our spirit of adoption has been poured into our hearts. But here's the deal. If you and I would be guided by these two pillars of the Gospels, presenting the words and deeds of Jesus, the humanity and the divinity of Christ, and our intimate walk with Christ through prayer, both personal and liturgical, then we can understand that to follow Christ as a disciple means to adopt the God-man's own priorities. The church has this wonderful saying in Gaudium et Spes, and I'm just going to paraphrase it here, but that Jesus, that God in Jesus Christ fully reveals God to humanity, but that also in that revelation, he reveals man to himself, that Jesus shows us what it means to be the complete man, the real man, the true man, the final man, the second Adam, the perfect fulfillment of all that it means to be human. And Jesus in doing that, right, he makes it possible for us to follow after him. So we need to adopt his priorities. So then we started with this fascinating study. I think it's a great character study following Frank Sheed and what difference does Jesus make and to know Christ Jesus, two of his wonderful books. We looked at what does Jesus hate the most? What was the thing that he railed against the most? What was the the biggest danger or pitfall for followers after Yahweh at the time of Christ? Well, it was being lovers of money. The scribes and the Pharisees were described as lovers of money. It said that they devoured widows' houses. They talked about uh, the, the seeds of the gospel falling on soil that has thorns and bramble. And what are the thorns and bramble? He says that it is the cares of the world and delight in riches that choke the word so that it proves unfruitful. Jesus beat up money changers and drove them out of the temple. He didn't do that to hypocrites. He did that to the money changers. The second thing that he attacked is this thing called foolishness, which means putting transient things in front of eternal ones, things that fade in front of things that never change, never go away, putting the concerns and cares and the kingdoms of men in front of the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus starts with the heart. We need to remember that. So he wants us to focus on the heart. And it's amazing that when Jesus starts teaching all these parables, they're not focused on like grand sinners and huge epic sins. They're focused on ordinary ones like hiding your talents, right? These are things that every man and woman are beset with. These are sins that pull us away from our birthright in Christ Jesus to be sons and daughters of the Father and to receive what he wants to give us. The next thing that we notice in terms of the priorities of Christ is not only the things that we need to hate, but the things that we need to love, namely that when he shows us the way, that way is a way of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So this notion of love, not just emotional, because you might not feel any emotion except, I don't know, rage and anger towards your enemy, but that doesn't mean you have permission to stop loving them. That is willing the good for the other. So this way of love gives us a picture of Christ who loved his own even to the end. And all four gospels, Frank Sheed points out, when you read through every lesson where salvation is on the line. Christ makes it seem as though the decision and our freedom belongs to us because he's doing the willing. He's doing the acting. He's pouring out the spirit and the grace. We need to cooperate with what Christ is offering us. The invitation is there. He is standing at the door and knocking at your heart. The question is, will you open it? So you say, okay, if I want to open this door, what kind of life am I opening this door to? And that's where we come to the lesson, episode five on the Beatitudes, the way and the end. You know, there's a bumper sticker that's really popular. You've probably seen it. It's not the uh, destination. It's the journey, right? Like people love the journey, bro. It's, it's all about the journey, not about the destination, man, right? But within Christ Jesus, the end, which is our union with him and the way are the same thing because Jesus said, I am the way. And so the Beatitudes or as we looked in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 17, 17 and following, that the Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ and portray his charity. That means it is a self-portrait that Jesus paints of himself for us. He's the one who is poor in spirit. He's the one who mourns and is meek and hungers and thirsts after righteousness and is merciful. He's the one who is pure of heart. He's the one who's a peacemaker. And he's the one, because of all those other things, who is persecuted. And so what is the reality of Christ Jesus, his countenance and his charity now become the vocation of disciples. So you and I need to memorize the Beatitudes, have them tattooed on our hearts, read the Sermon on the Mount as the Magna Carta of the Christian life. This is a retreat that Bob, Dr. Bob Rice at Franciscan used to do for all of his high school students. He would give them Matthew 5, 6, and 7, tell them to open their Bibles to that page, and then he would send them out in the middle of a retreat and just say, read this. And if you want this kind of life, come back and let's pray for it, right? Because these are kingdom priorities from the inside out, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst, merciful, pure of heart, peacemakers, all of that stuff builds up within us to reorder our priorities, to give us kingdom priorities and not worldly priorities that are so easy for us to lose track because of, right? These worldly concerns and delight in riches steal away this vision. They rob us of our priorities. And if you actually exercise kingdom priorities, then yes, that eighth beatitude will be yours. Blessed are those persecuted for the kingdom of heaven, 
right? That's what's going to happen. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men persecute you, insult you, and revile you, and utter every kind of evil against you, falsely rejoice and be glad, for thus do they persecute the prophets. Here we are. And now we go right into that next one. The suffering refiner's fire, you know what that does? That enables us to overcome one of the great temptations of the Christian walk, which is the externalism of the Pharisees. Now, before we mock the Pharisees as just this puppet enemy, we have to understand why Jesus never once made common cause with them. He never made common cause with them, even though their doctrines allied, even though some of them were deeply heroic, even though many of them converted to the way of the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts of the Apostles. It's because what Jesus wanted to do was he wanted to start with the heart, the guts, the interior desires of every human person, and not just with their outward action. See, you can have a profound willpower and self-discipline that you master your external actions. But if that level of extreme asceticism and discipline actually is achieved by you, you can, and very few people can't, become super arrogant, become super elitist, become super judgmental. And in fact, we actually have the stories of Pharisees or comments of the Pharisees, right? They denounced uh, you know, people as, oh, what are you also, a Galilean? And they attacked their own at a moment's notice. They attacked the common people, the, the Anawim, the poor of the land, as being unsaved because they didn't know the Torah like the Pharisees did. And so what Jesus wants to do is he wants to focus on conversion of mind and heart, not just outward actions. And so he has to attack the establishment and not just the Pharisees. He goes after the Sadducees. He goes after the elders. He goes after the priestly aristocracy in Jerusalem itself. Why? Because it could not contain the newness of life that Christ wished to bring. And such a focus on that externalism was preventing the gospel from going to the ends of the earth. In the next episode, we talked about faith and the word. And in this episode, it was called Faith Without a Miracle, meaning so many people in the Gospels that have failed conversions are actually those who convert in a direct result from a miracle or a sign, something miraculous that happens. There was the scenes of the wedding feast at Cana in John chapter two. You got this beautiful wedding feast at Cana. Jesus supplies a super abundance of not just good wine, but the very best wine from the Jewish purification ceremonial jars. And yet, and at the end of that chapter, verses 23 and 25, it said, many began to believe in him because of the works that they saw, but he did not believe himself to them for he knew what was in man and needed no one to testify to man. So it's like, wow. So they believe because of the signs not because of his words. And then he has words with a man in in John 3, Nicodemus, about the whole conversation of being born again. And it left Nicodemus half converted, not fully convinced. But then we go to John chapter 4, and here we have an outcast woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, an outcast woman of an outcast people, and she hears his word without anything super miraculous other than him telling her her history using words, right? She goes into the town, the very town that rejected her, and said, come and meet a man who has told me all that I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? And not only does she convert, but her whole town converts, first at her testimony, and then later as Jesus spends several days with them. These converts, because of the word, have staying power. So you and I think, oh, if only Jesus would perform a miracle, if only he would intervene in some supernatural way 
If Christ were to stand before me right now, I would give my whole life to him. I would go become a priest. I would go to the desert. I would go, you know, whatever. And the reality is, nah, nah. It reminds me of what the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? You got the poor man, Lazarus up in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man says, well, then send Lazarus. It's funny. The rich man is still barking orders, right? Go send Lazarus to my brothers and my father's house. And he just says, no, they have the law and the prophets If they won't listen to Moses. They won't listen even if someone should rise from the dead. And that was a condemnation of the Pharisees who every miracle did not become uh, an irrefutable proof that God loves them and God, the, the hand of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That became another reason to hate our Lord. He works a miracle on the Sabbath and they want to destroy him. Right. Think about this. That's in John. Uh, the next part in that we're going to cover on suffering is in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 <laughs> follows John 11. Shocker, because that's the story of the raising of Lazarus. And John chapter 12 talks about how the resurrection or the, the yeah, the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. He ended up being a target of the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. Because he's walking around. He's a living proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're like, well, now we have to kill him. So we need to put away this thing that, oh, because I had a miracle happen, now I'll believe. Or because of this or that manifestation, then I'll believe. That's not what happens. You and I need, maybe without ever seeing a sign, surrender to the word of faith that is preached to us. You and I need to become, this is the first pillar, men and women of the gospel. We need to hear the words of Christ and not just the gospels, the whole Bible. We need to saturate in the word of God written down so that we might believe. But what do we do? Ah, we're too busy. Or it's not like the shack. It's not emotional. It's not this. And this is the problem with us. We are looking for signs. We're looking to be emotionally moved and manipulated. And what Christ wants to do is he wants to put before you two ways, a way of life and a way of death, his way or the way of the world. And this goes into episode eight, the cost of discipleship. Jesus begins this, right? He begins Holy Week with Palm Sunday. Everyone is screaming his name, saying Hosanna to the son of David as he rides in on a colt, right? And yet the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests, they say, see how the whole world goes after him. And they took counsel how to destroy him. But it isn't until the Greeks come up and say to Philip, who then gets, you know, all this stuff. It's like a, there's a funny little game of telephone there. But they say, we desire to meet Jesus. And Jesus responds like, all right, now's the hour. And he says this, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. Brothers and sisters, the cost of discipleship is simple. You and I will suffer. That is the entry. That's table stakes to get in the game of poker with Jesus is, will you? No man could be a follower of mine unless he first deny himself, take up his cross every day and follow me. So if we think about even the, the, the first movement of following Christ is met with this stark reality to not just receive the cross of Christ but to take up our own crosses and there as servants to be found with the master. He was crucified and he bids us to come follow him. Fulton Sheen said, we have two attitudes to suffering that is depicted by both thieves on either side of Christ crucified. One is rebellion. Lord, if you really are, you say you are, take us down from this cross. And the other one is resignation, right? We deserve to be here, but Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Now, we explored in that episode, what does it mean to have resignation towards suffering? That doesn't mean you love suffering. Ooh, hurts so good, right? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, I kind of broke it down through three levels. I'm sure there's a better way to break this down, but this is the way my brain worked. The first level is the philosopher's way, uh, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, their way of viewing suffering, which is, listen, suffering exists. You can't escape it, so you got to own it, but also it can become a pathway to virtue. So you can voluntarily embrace suffering and you can become not just more disciplined, but more patient, more kind, more loving, whatever. Christ, now that's level, that's level one. Level two is Christ then, he suffered in order to redeem the world, right? So by his suffering, he says in there in John 12, that same passage, he says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this hour that I have come into the world. And so we understand that though his human nature balked in fear at the cross, he also, with that same human heart, pushed forward in courage. And so when we see this beautifulness, we see this level two understanding of suffering, of resignation, that yes, suffering is awful, but when Christ embraces suffering, it redeems the world. So then level three is uniting one and two in order to make redemptive suffering ours. This is what the saints do. They don't run from suffering. They embrace suffering because they know that suffering, one, matures us in Christ. Two, it keeps us humble, right? Three, it teaches us compassion for others who are suffering. Four, it schools us in our own self-insufficiency and our need for grace, Christ's grace every moment. And finally, it communicates that true theology of the Trinity into our hearts through self-giving love instead of taking, taking, taking. And this leads us to the ultimate form of suffering as human persons, as fallen human persons, as sinners, which means that thing where we lay down our arms as rebels and repent and come home. The word is metanoia in Greek. We've translated it as do penance or repent. John the Baptist preached it by way of preparing for Christ, Christ Jesus preached it, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. First words out of his mouth in Mark's gospel. The apostles spread this word. Jesus taught them to say, to to preach repentance and the kingdom of heaven when he sent them out. These are the first words of the kingdom. And yet, and yet, we rarely hear these words today in our sermons and homilies. Metanoia, repent. What does that word mean? Well, literally, meta, beyond, after, change, whatever. Noia, nous, meaning mind. So it means to change your mind or to change your heart or to change your life. You have to go beyond your old ways in order to embrace the new. If we start with the heart, just like with prayer, just like avoiding externalism, then conversion means getting a new heart. This is the prophecy of Ezekiel. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's going to give us this metanoia as a new way of viewing the world. True repentance then for every Roman Catholic is a radical reorientation of one's whole life, as the catechism says. Right? That's not like, oh, I'm doing penance. I'm giving up soda for a week. Or radical reorientation of one's whole life. That's the catechism right there. Repentance is, number one, sorrow over past sins. Number two, renunciation of my current vices, those the grip that sin has on my heart. And then number three, resolution against future evil, right? Against evil desires, against putting myself in compromising situations. That's what metanoia means. If you want to metanoia, you have got to repent, renounce, and resolve. 
But what happens is we go into the 10th episode, right? The purgative way. You and I know what it's like, that the romance of conversion, when everything felt like Christ was everywhere, you could feel our Lord's presence. And then things happened. You, you encountered people at church, maybe the clergy, maybe the laity. You encountered the sinfulness of the church, these external things, and you were disappointed and disillusioned. And your love began to get a little cold, if not just confused. And then what happens is you turned inwardly, right? And then all of a sudden, this thing called grace didn't seem to be working the way you thought it would be working. And now you become disillusioned with internal things. Prayer? Prayer? That's not, that's not the sweetness of familiarity yet. Instead, it's the monotony of piety. And you're bored with it. And it doesn't do anything for you. And people leave Christ claiming, you know, running after some other fad, like I said in that episode, goat yoga or something like that. Then finally, you go from externals to internals to the self. And we become disillusioned that we're still the same person we always were. I thought Christ was supposed to change all that. But if the soul is strong and endures, this final disillusionment is actually not just disillusionment at all, but the work of Christ to peel away all of those things from you that are not him. So that in the end, you can let go of Jesus Christ so that he can hold on to you. And once the soul does that, it moves out of the purgative way, being purified from her false externals, her false interior fixations, her false sense of self into the illuminative way, which was the 11th episode, where Jesus now begins to reclothe and adorn your soul with all that is his and of him. The soul advances in virtue and prayer. Occasions of sin and, and people that kind of led you into sin in the purgative way all of a sudden become new sources of grace for you and virtue. You're like that annoying person that I used to curse under my breath whenever they came around. Now I'm seeking them because I know I will become more patient and more holy and they will receive my love in a new way. And all of a sudden you seek out the very thing that used to drive you to sin. Now it drives you to holiness. Divine friendship is the source and object of one's own contemplation. This is the way Robert Hugh Benson puts it. One becomes conscious of God's presence and friendship within your own soul. Virtue becomes easier, yet also sin becomes graver because you've been exposed to intimacy with our Lord so much more because you have mastery over things that maybe for much of your life you had no mastery over. So to leave Christ and this union and enter into sin, it becomes far more grave. And the gravest temptation of all at this stage, especially at the latter end of the illuminative way, is individualism, which is expressed in the rejection of the voice of God in the church for one's own voice. This is the true depths of demonic spiritual pride. And usually when this begins to manifest, all the um, other forms of pride, like emotional and social pride, start to well up in the soul, who probably thought that they were, had left that long ago. This is how and where the worst heretics of church history come from. After all, the immature souls would not be led astray except by these Judases of history that spent the most amount of time with Christ. And so here we are. At this final step, this finale episode of this season of Every Knee Shall Bow. And before we continue, we're going to take a quick break from our sponsor at Ascension. 
Press. They are such wonderful, good people. But before we go uh, out to commercial break, I want you to send me an email, eksb at ascensionpress.com. I want you to send me an email if you've been following this series, just to say if you liked it and what about it you liked. If you hated it, you can go uh, email uh, Dave at thesinnersguide.com. But if you loved it, <laughs> if you no, what stood out to you the most within this series? We were trying something new with this format. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, we can we can press on and go even deeper into Christian discipleship and evangelization for the next season. I got some big ideas, got plans, but EKSB at ascensionpress.com. Email me. Let's roll. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect sinful men to be the foundation of his church and because these broken and perfect men chose to remain in relationship with jesus they became saints and they were used by jesus to transform hearts and minds two thousand years later i invite you to check out my book broken and blessed where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin to have a personal relationship with jesus christ and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, now here we are. We are back. Hope you got a great message from Ascension. I listen to every episode after they uh, master it and edit it and all that stuff, and I'm always shocked, always shocked, number one, at how stupid I sound, but number two, at all the awesome stuff that Ascension Press is doing. I get a lot of their samples, but I want all the things, all the things, all the time. So let's do another quick summary. What does it mean to be a disciple, generically? A disciple is someone who follows a master. It's a student of a teacher. It is someone who is an apprentice. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Well, disciples are disciplined with the lessons of the master. And it's similar to ancient rabbis in Jesus' time, he called men to follow him in his way of life and be devoted to his teachings. Okay, come follow me. That's what rabbis said, Lekakiri, come follow me. But unlike the rabbis of Jesus' time, Jesus' disciples were called in all different stages of life, in all different manners of vocations, from all over the place in ancient Israel. And these people were called at all different levels of their own knowledge and faithfulness. They were not scholars of the law. And fascinatingly enough, not all were men. Not all followed him physically daily. Some held down base camps in different cities, like in Bethany, that's the house of uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, right? But women were followers. Here's another difference. The difference with rabbis is, if you were disciplined enough and you followed the master enough and you learned quickly enough, you would become a rabbi yourself and continue that school of thought. You master the teaching, then you go out as a rabbi on your own. This is why Jesus says, call no man teacher, call no man rabbi, right? Because Christian disciples never leave Christ. They never stop being a disciple. It's fascinating because he's the master, but he's God. He's not just another rabbi. So here's another thing with Jesus that's different from all the other rabbis. Because he's God, the difference is his personhood. He wasn't just teaching about the object of study, the Torah. He is the embodiment. He is the incarnation of the word of God. So he is both the subject and the object of study, not just his words and not just his deeds, 
but his words and deeds to get to his very personhood. Put better, his words and deeds, even his hidden life and his ordinary comings and goings, all of the lessons in which every disciple must be educated because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it is all in him. He is the center of everything. He is God. As one uh, rabbi, Rabbi Jacob Neusner says, uh, put himself back in the story the rabbi encounters Jesus. He says, you know, there I am, and I picture myself, I hear the sermon I'm out, I go over his disciples out of deference to him and say, does your teacher think he's God? And the answer for Christians is absolutely yes. Okay, so if you believe that Christ is God and you want to be his disciple, and you know that means for the rest of my life, I will sit at the feet of the master. I will take on his disciplines. And we say, how do I follow Christ today? And the answer is this, within the sacramental life of the church, how God communicates his life of grace to us, every single Catholic needs to embrace these two pillars of intimacy with Christ. The first pillar is diligent, prayerful, studious attention to the four gospels. We must study him the Gospels gives us the humanity and the divinity of Christ. They give us his words and deeds. They correct our false images of Jesus. They prevent us from having distorted views of what it means to follow after him. The second pillar is personal prayer. Jesus modeled the new way of praying that was built upon those Jewish foundations, but he superseded them because he is the eternal son of God, and he communicates his sonship to us. So when you study the person of Jesus in the Gospels and you have recourse to daily prayer that is persistent, honest, faithful, patient, and unafraid to wrestle with God amid difficulties, it's also liturgical like the Psalms and uncomfortable like the prophets, when you cry out from your heart to the Father like Christ crucified, then you understand how you follow him intimately as a friend, as a brother, as the bridegroom to your soul. So then how do you persist? in this intimacy with Jesus. Well, the life of Christ is ordered by Christ. That is his priorities need to become yours. You need to imitate the master as much as possible, starting with your inmost desires. Conversion means ripping up the roots of the old man of the flesh that glories only in this world's gifts and seeks first the kingdom of heaven. The disciple does this by carrying his cross daily after Christ, with Christ, behind Christ, following him. If you place heaven before earth, then certain things follow. First, you'll be untouchable by this world that will always seek to manipulate you and corrupt you through worldly means, success, pleasure, riches, or you know, threats to be canceled, torture, sufferings, pains, poverty. None of that will bother you. Well, it'll bother you, let's be honest. But if you're strong in Christ, you will remain untouchable by all the tools that this world will use to manipulate you. Second, you will adopt the priorities of Christ. You will hate what he hates and love those whom he loves and love what he loves. You will despise the love of money. I mean, just think right now, how many pastors, how many preachers, how many priests and bishops have been destroyed in the history of the church, even today on television, hop on YouTube and type this stuff up by the love of money. Yet you and I, while we live in the world and we need to use money and all of this stuff, if we live for it and love it, well, you cannot love God. You cannot love God and mammon. The ordinary things of this world can either sanctify you or drag you back into your old sins. And so you need to embrace those priorities that this world cannot 
understands, such as the Beatitudes and resignation to suffering, insults, and persecution. For thus did they treat the master who was before you. And remember that suffering is not an end in itself. We're not trying to be gluttons for punishment, but it's another pathway back to Christ, a pathway that was made by his human heart. So what if you fail Christ? What if you abandon Christ? What if you're listening to this right now and you have been far from Christ and you don't know him, but you want to, you want to love him. You want to come home. Maybe you do love him, which is why you want to come home. Well, let me just say this. Every baptized Christian that has fallen into disillusionment, into despair, into habitual mortal sin is always only one honest act of repentance away from coming home to Christ. Repentance is mourning your sins with the real interior sorrow of your heart. It's expressed through the confession of your sins with all humility to God's priest. It is solidified by your renunciation, not just of your sins, but of the occasions that led you there, as well as your resolution to never walk that false path again. No sin is greater than Christ's crucified and risen mercy towards you and me, towards sinners. Think on that for a while. No failure is bigger than his love for you. You can always repent. Well, the time is at hand. So don't wait. Don't plan on a deathbed conversion because he comes like a thief in the night. But we all know this. We all know we can get trapped into sins of externalism. We all know we can play games of putting on a good show, putting on a good face, wearing the masks we know others want us to wear. That's one of the traps of Christians who are newly converted. They don't know the lingo. And so they sit there and they go to Bible studies and they hear these things. And all of a sudden they think they've got it and they can say the things like, oh, just Lord bless you and bless his heart. And like, the, you know, God's just really moving in my life. And they don't even know what these words mean, but we can say it right? We know the masks others want us to wear without actually loving, praying, or sacrificing a thing. We can use Christian words and phrases. We can attend church events and conferences and wear Christian t-shirts and wristbands with various acronyms on it. And we can inside be twice a child of hell. Not everyone who calls to him, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Externalism is the way of the Pharisee who, even though with extraordinary efforts, achieve phenomenal acts of the will, only do so to succumb to spiritual pride vainglory, and even the love of money. On the other side, the lukewarm Christian also can fall into a rut. He or she accepts that failure and sin will be a part of life and that perhaps this living and joyless despair is what it means to be a Christian. Such souls have had too much of God to enjoy the world and too much of the world to enjoy God. And they remain in the middle, paralyzed by their timidity. The saints are not made of such stuff. They chose God even to the contempt of the world, and thereby they gained the crown of life. There are two lies that come against every Christian. The two worst traps are, number one, thinking that you are the reason why Christ called you to himself, not him. And number two is forgetting that Satan, your adversary, is prowling about looking for opportunities to destroy your intimacy with Christ. You are not sufficient, you are not perfect, and you are not flawless, no matter how many filters you run on your Instagram photos. We all have wounds in our hearts that have disordered and distorted our habits of thought and speech and relationships. We all have sins freely done, even aggressively committed by us, 
that don't just need to be forgiven, they need to be redeemed from the inside out. In short, to quote the cliche, every saint has a past and every sinner potentially has a future with Christ. All of this is reconciled in Christ alone. Satan will allow you your Christian t-shirts, your podcasts, your conferences, your books, and your little social Christian clicks, as long as your love for the gifts distracts you from the giver. Satan will get you to doubt your authenticity the moment your emotions fade. He will question your conversion the moment you relapse into an old sin. He will do what he is, accuse and accuse and accuse until your heart's disillusionment breaks and you forget the words of our Savior. My power is made perfect in weakness. But at the end of the day, each day, you are only one act of honest repentance away from undoing the works of Satan and your own stupidity, exposing these to the light of Christ and just coming home. To the lie, you are enough. Speak the truth. He alone is the way. And let that be enough for you. God bless.